So Hare Krishna, everybody, welcome. Um, so I'm going to start with prayers as usual, and uh, then we'll get into the final session today. So. Om Anjana Timirandasya, Nyananjana Shalakaya, Chakshurum Militum Yena, Tasmai Sri Guru Venamaha. Siddhanto Palasarinityarasikam, Hansam Vilasatmakam, Adaryakya Sudama Sevakadanam Vishram Babhakti Pradam, Yakya Yukti Vichakshanam Bhagavado, Vashishta Shakti Sada, Vandehang Chaparari Namakayating Sri Bhakti Vedantinam. Vancha kalpaturubhyas cha kripa sindhubhyeva cha patthanam bhavanebhyo vaishnavebhyo namo namaha. Ajano lambita bhujau kanakavatatao sankirtanai kapatarao kamalaya takshau vishvambarao dvijavarao yukadharma palau vandejaka priyakarao karunavatarao vandejshri krishna chaitanya nityananda sahodito Gurudai Pushpavanto Chitro Shando Tamonudau Vandeyang Shri Ramakrishna Abhaya Charanasukau Sukhatau Paramananda Sundaro Subalapriyo He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dina Bandhu Jagapate Gopesha Gopika Kantarada Kantanamostute Tapta Kanchana Gorangi Rade Vrindavaneshwari Prishabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Vandana Karite Muhi Tata Shakti Dari Tamo Budido Shemui Damba Matrakori Tatapi Mukera Bhagya Manera Ulas Doshakshami Mudame Kronijadas so welcome everybody. Um, I think it's all live and all that. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump in. So as you know, we've been um, studying the fourth chapter of uh, the Bhagavad Gita um, and looking at, at different insights from the Bhakti tradition, especially from the Gaudiya tradition. But also we've been looking at other um, Bhakti traditions too, um, different sampradayas. But the insights into um, Krishna's descent into the world and the different ways that Krishna descends into the world. So we, we, we looked at, um, initially we looked at knowledge, for example, knowledge of Krishna and how he comes into this world through knowledge and, and especially through his parampara and some different ways that he moves that uh, through that parampara in the world. And then we also looked at how he personally comes uh, in the form of avatar and for various reasons. So we had some discussions on that, uh, but primarily uh, we, we emphasize the point that he comes for his devotees, um, for bhakti, essentially. And we looked last time uh, at the power of understanding these points about Krishna descending into the world. Um, but Krishna, uh, he also... Uh, comes into this world in other ways as well. Um, and that's why we find so many different kinds of expressions of religion, for example, so many different kinds of spirituality and, and these kind of things. So we're, we're going to go a bit more into that today, again, through the lens of our tradition. Um, so this, uh, this famous verse, uh, 4.11 from the Gita, brings this out in different ways. So um, I'm sure, sure you'll all be familiar with this verse, but I'll just re uh, recite it just for um, uh, to bring us back back to speed, because I think it was the only the first session that we kind of read the, the actual verses themselves. So there, as you know, he says, 
in whatever way people take refuge in me, I reciprocate with them. Everyone in all circumstances, O son of Prita, follows my path. So, although we're going to explore some other ways that Krishna appears in this world to different seekers, um, you know, different different uh, individuals in the world, in, in his commentary, our, our Guru Maharaj, he, he points out that initially Krishna is still thinking of his devotees. So we saw last week, you know, he, he had explained how many persons had been purified and attained love for him, uh, ultimately. And so we discussed some of that last week. And so naturally, in speaking about the devotees who attain love for him, his heart goes to them. And, and you know, they have different relationships with him, as we know. And so he reciprocates with all, the, all of them accordingly. So, you know, some as a friend, some as a lover, some as servants, as elders, and so on. Um, so that's one way to understand this verse, actually, is, is the, the different spiritual emotions in the heart of his devotees, the, the bhavas. You know, Krishna reciprocates with those different spiritual emotions. So if, if someone approaches with, with the mood of a friend, then Krishna responds in a friendly way. And all the devotees of Raj, they're all pure devotees. They, they all have selfless love, as we've discussed in other series. But Krishna reciprocates differently according to what nourishes and deeper, deepens the emotion of that particular relationship. So this is one way to understand this, that he reciprocates to nourish those moods or deepen that particular emotion. It's a very sweet way to think of the verse, I think, that he, he reciprocates according to their particular loving approach. But that said, uh, we could end, end right now, actually, because <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful uh, and sweet, sweet insight in itself. But not, as we know, not everyone approaches Krishna in that way. Not everyone approaches Krishna with bhava or prema. Uh, though, of course, um, you know, we, we, we might not even be, of course, ourselves. But you could also say not everyone approaches even with the desire to achieve bhava or prema. And these things, there, there are many reasons that people approach Krishna, whether that's directly or indirectly. And it's rare that it's selfless love that is being sought. Not, not everyone wants to be a pure devotee, but they still, they approach Krishna. So some schools, such as jnanis, for example, some schools of jnanis, they, they, they don't think of Krishna's activities, for example, as being eternally true in the same way that we think about them. Um, but they still approach Krishna for liberation or knowledge of Brahman. Some, sometimes uh, bhakti, for example, is seen as a vehicle see, uh, that, so they can achieve their desires. They can achieve those things that they're looking for. But the, when they achieve those things, bhakti can be given up uh, when, again once they attain their desired goal. And others may approach Krishna to fill, fulfill material desires, for example. So Krishna speaks this verse to explain what happens in these cases. And the first point he makes is that everyone follows Krishna, whether it's directly or indirectly. So everyone in all circumstances follows his path. It's quite an interesting statement. And so people Again, people approach him in one way or another, even if it's through his material energy for material gain, for example. But whatever path one takes, only Krishna's behind it all, right? Like there's, there's no one else behind the grand scheme of things ultimately. And so some people may approach him in one way or another, 
even without realizing that they're, they're approaching him. Uh, everyone's searching for him in different aspects of his manifestation. He's the ultimate goal of all philosophies, for example, or, or the objective to be attained by all, e even if that's not explicitly stated by them. So we'll get a bit more into that in a second, but even when someone seeks material benefits, for example, let's take in a classical sense, in a Van Ashram system, you know, maybe through worshipping the demigods, uh, they may be unaware that the gods are dependent on Krishna to fulfill their desires, but ultimately, as we know, they are, and so they're still approaching Krishna, albeit indirectly, and the same could be said if we, if we we could extend that a little more for those who take shelter of the material energy, even, even if they're devoid of the knowledge of the consciousness that's underlying the movement of the material energy, they're still taking shelter in some ways. So, so Krishna says that everyone, he uses the term sarvasa, that everyone is following his path because ultimately Krishna is the essence of all those paths. He, he's the maintainer and energizer of all creation. And so Krishna is pointing this out, that there is, is only his path, but people tread it a bit differently, depending on what their desires are and what, where they are and these kind of things. So they may, they may not lead to the same goal, something that we'll get it into a bit more next, but, but they are united. I, I really like a point that our Guru Maharaj makes in, in regards to this idea that in, in one sense, all consciousness is Krishna consciousness, because we're all conscious entities, and obviously this has been discussed quite thoroughly in the, the second chapter. And as conscious entities, we're all connected to our source. So all activity really that goes, takes place is pursuing our source directly or indirectly. You know, we, we may wonder where we came from. So we, we, we might pursue that in different ways, maybe in the field of science, for example, you know, what, what's the origin of the universe, these kind of things. We, we may look at gene, genealog genealogical tables uh, you know, our ancestors and so on. We may uh, pursue it in the realm of religion. Um, there are many different ways, but, but in essence, it's all the same motivation. And so generally, most people will look for the source in relation to matter, not in conscious, not consciousness, uh, even though matter is sometimes said to be a shadow of consciousness. So, so another way to look at that is that our source, just like our very selves, has some natural pleasure as part of this makeup. You know, so, sometimes we hear Satchit Ananda, for example, you know, that there, there is some Ananda. And so most people search for that Ananda, for that pleasure in matter as well. But whichever direction a person goes, whether it's a material path, spiritual path, and so on, really they're, they're different nuanced ways of pursuing this reality of being consciousness and, and all that that entails. So Krishna is saying that, all, all of the, uh, those, all these people he's speaking about, all those following him, uh, sorry, all, all the people who approach him, you know, they're, they're, they're all following him in different ways. So they're all united in that sense. You know, they're, 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 there is some underlying unity. Um, but of course, it's important uh, to clarify a bit more. And Krishna himself clarifies that a little more uh, in the next part of that verse. And this is the part of the verse that sometimes is misunderstood or sometimes maybe even ignored uh, that is it's not the case that whatever path we take that they, they all lead to the same place so krishna says he reciprocates accordingly and so not all paths are the same in every way and 
you know, I, I understand kind of the sentiment why that part is sometimes ignored because we love we love to hear th this point that all paths are united, right? We want to feel like yes, we're all part of the whole, and so we're all united in these things naturally. We want harmony in the world <laughs> generally, but if we only take that part, then it, we, we'd have to say, uh, we have to look at like the philosophical implications, for example, you know, we'd have to say that someone pursuing their source just by extreme hedonism, for example, you know, no concern for the suffering that it may inflict on others, that they'll achieve the exact same results uh, by their actions, just like someone who's pursuing their source by methods that uproot selfishness from the heart, for example. And it's an extreme example, I know, but you know, this is the philosophical outcome if you follow that trail of thought. So it, that's why it's an important emphasis also that although all paths are united, not all paths are the same in every way. The Krishna never disregards anybody, the, even those who are in, in ignorance, you know, uh, who, who neglect him, for example. He doesn't ignore them even uh, in, in the fullest sense of the term, but he reciprocates correspondingly, whether that's directly or indirectly. And so it, this also highlights that God isn't partial, and so he can't be blamed for the way he interacts with us, that we, we play a part in the way that he responds to us. I really like this point uh, in, in our Guru Maharaj's commentary that highlights this. It's, a, it's so succinct, but it's a very, very deep and profound thought. And I, I, I think it's wonderful that um, overall, Krishna is the architect of the cosmic order, but not its author. Desire writes the story. The desire or ideal of people determines their conception of God. So... There are, there are so many religions, spiritual paths, philosophical paths, or even material-oriented paths, and not everyone wants devotion. You know, as I mentioned earlier, even on the spiritual path, for example, you know, there are some schools, like Nyanis, for example, generally looking for liberation. So we can choose what we want in relation to the absolute. And so in the verses up until now, like some of the verses we discussed last week, Krishna had been speaking about those who approach him in truth, that they ultimately attain praying or pure love. Is that sometimes brought out from that, meaning, you know, those who approach him in truth, like we were discussing, um, you know, to, to really know someone's to love someone. You know, Guru Maharaj often quotes that song, for example. So, so some approach in other ways, though. So if they approach for material acquisition, then Krishna will reward them with what they're looking for, with the fruits of their actions. You know, the same with other kind of approaches, whether that's cities or mystic powers, you know, mukti or liberation, they'll get those things. Or even, you know, I've heard this point made before, it's, uh, but it's, it's also quite, it's quite humorous, but true at the same time, if you think about it, that if they approach with an atheistic outlook, for example, Krishna will give that knowledge to convince themselves of the truth of that philosophy. That's why everyone's so certain that they're, they're you know, right in this or that or the other. So as someone approaches Krishna, they're going to see one side of him or another or another side of him, especially when we think about the point that, you know, in one sense, Krishna is everything, you know, as the complete whole, for example, as we find in the Upanishad, Sri Upanishad invocation. And there may be many paths that lead to the mountain, but not all of them go to the top that the same mountain has different facets of it according to the path one takes. There's, there's different methods of practice and they lead to different results depending on the desires of the practitioners. Sometimes 
there can be a misconception that Krishna is saying here that they'll attain the, the same results, whatever action they perform. But as, as I was saying earlier, that that's not really the case. Krishna is not partial. And so these different paths of yoga, like karma yoga, jnana yoga, bhakti yoga, they all lead to him in, in varying degrees. But not, not all spiritual paths are exactly the same, and they don't all lead to exactly the same place. So there, there are similarities, but depending on the, the practice or the sadhana and the goal, the sadhya, you know, what, what is someone doing the practice for in the first place? That, that's going to determine the outcome. And then a nice example uh, to help us understand the different ways that people approach Krishna and, and his relative reciprocation is that of a wealthy person. I, I've heard this example being used sometimes, um, like the parable of the, the wealthy person. There's, there's three people and they approach a wealthy person uh, in different ways and they, they each have something different in mind. So the first person, they, they approach uh, the wealthy person because they know he's wealthy and so they offer a lot of praise and they may even offer their services to the wealthy person. And of course, this person isn't unintelligent. They, they know what, what the first person wants. You know, they, they know that they want what they have. And so although this person is sincerely serving the wealthy person, it's not that they're not sincerely serving the person, but they do also want something in return. So there is some kind of like business transaction of sorts there, but because uh, the wealthy person is such a magnanimous person, naturally they'll reciprocate because the first person has um, still approached him, you know, they, so, so that they, they will respond with something. And so the next person, they come and they see, well, this wealthy person must have a lot of power, you know, because that comes along with wealth generally. And so the second person wants that power or the knowledge by which they got the wealth in the first place. So, so the knowledge is more valuable because then a person can can get that wealth themselves right if they know how to earn the money or however it is they acquire the money uh, or the wealth then you know that's that's going to be more valuable because they don't just have to ask for some of the wealth of the other person they, they can get that same wealth themselves they can become a wealthy person themselves they have the same knowledge so again the wealthy person understands this motivation and so we'll reciprocate also we'll share some of that knowledge um and so, as we mentioned, this person is magnanimous. They're a very kind person. And so when they're approached, naturally, they'll receive both the people. They receive them very nicely and they will give them what they want, what they came for, and then send them on their way to do with those assets, whatever they'd like. But then a third person, they will come and they say they just want to be with a wealthy person. You know, they want to get to know them. They want to hang out. They want to develop a friendship. There's some affection there. And so the wealthy person may test them initially to see, you know, do you really not want anything? These kind of things. But it's quite clear that the third person isn't concerned about acquiring the wealth or the knowledge and just likes to be with him, you know. So naturally, he's not going to send them away in a similar way. They'll want to keep such a person around to hang out with. And so, it's, it's, you know, it's quite a simple parable, but I think it, it does highlight kind of a lot of the aspects of this verse very nicely, that we, we, we can understand the nature of different paths in a similar way. And Krishna points this out explicitly in this verse, that they are all on his path. They're all following him. They're all approaching him in some way, but they do have a different desire to each other. Uh, a nice way our Guru Maharaj puts it is that 
they, they have a different idea to what it means to relate to the absolute and, and what we can derive from the absolute. So the sadhana or the practice and the sadhya or the goal, they, they're different. And, and we can't fault any practice, but what we can do is look objectively and see what, what do we really feel is better since, you know, really in our hearts, what do we feel is, is a better approach? And some may genuinely feel the best thing is to approach the absolute uh, for material gain. Uh, you know, especially if your conception, if you don't have so much knowledge of the world and your conception is that this world is all that there is, then naturally you're going to feel, well, the best thing is to uh, get the, the highest grade of material pleasure or, or comfort and gain that you can. And some think that they should approach for knowledge or to gain mukti or liberation. And on our path, we, we think that we should approach the absolute for love because we, we feel that the absolute is lovable. Of course, we know him as Krishna. We don't refer to him generally even as the absolute, but we, we see him as Krishna and we see him as lovable. Um, and we, we can also see uh, when we, we look at just ourselves and our, our own kind of nature, that the highest expression of ourselves is when we love or, or we give, to be a giver or a lover. It's sometimes said like that. Yudhumaraj says that we, we want to exist to love rather than just love to exist. Uh, and I, I think that's a nice way to put it. Uh, we, you know, so naturally, we, we see that as a higher expression. But of course, everyone can decide for themselves what they think is best. And of course, more knowledge someone has will allow someone to make a more informed judgment. But, and that's, that's why you see even in the Gita that Krishna emphasizes knowledge quite, quite frequently, you know, even then when he speaks about um, Bhakti, even he says the king of knowledge, right, Rajavidya, like we discussed a bit, little bit last week. So, um, but I think it's also important to emphasize that we should respect and understand that others may have a different feeling about it. And, that, and that's why there are different paths, that people have different aspirations in connection with the absolute. So if someone is very attached to material acquisition or pleasure, it, it, it's easy to see in the Vedic texts how there is scope for that. You know, one, one could re easily read many of the texts with the conclusion that, you know, to do good works and to get good material reactions is the goal of life. In other words, to develop, develop good karma. There, there's a reality to that experience. And so if someone has that orientation, it, it would be easy to justify it, even with Shastra, uh, you know, with, with revelation, why they pursue that path. In fact, we even saw it with Arjuna in the Gita. You know, he made some arguments in the first chapter related to the Karma Mark. So, of course, as we know, if someone goes a bit deeper, so, so really they, they've gained a little more knowledge from, from the Vedic texts, for example, you know, such as going into the Upanishads. You, you, you can understand there that karma binds us, no matter the quality of the karma, whether it's good karma or bad karma, it's still binding. And this naturally makes sense to us because we, we also have some these understandings, you know, we're spiritually oriented in that direction. And we've heard so many discussions on karma, I'm sure. Um, but for someone on the karma mark, it might not be so obvious for them, for someone who hasn't been exposed to the same kind of knowledge, for example graced in that way. So I, I like the way uh, my Guru Maharaj puts this understanding and pointing out that, uh, you know, revelation of the divine 
it comes from above to down. So like we were speaking about avatar coming from above to down, that's similar with revelation of the divine, like we spoke in the series, uh, the section on the parampara and so on. And we've discussed it in, in various ways in, in the series. But when the divine comes, it hits people in different ways also. And so there are different paths. There are different religions. Just like when Krishna personally comes, you know, different people see him in different ways. You know, this, there's this verse in the Bhagavatam in the wrestling arena. Uh, you know, some saw him as great hero, some saw him as death personified, some as a friend, as a lover, and so on. Some as God, some not as God, you know. So similarly, when the divine comes in other ways, such as through Shastra, it, that also touches people in different ways. So in a simplistic way, we can break most, if not all, paths of the world into three main paths. You could say like religion of the heart religion of the head or religion of the body. Um, that's the way our Guru Maharaj sometimes puts it, you know, or other words, bhakti, jnana, and karma. And there may be nuances within those, of course, subsets and so on. But Krishna is pointing out that all of them follow him. And when they do, in the way that they do, then he reciprocates accordingly. But every one of them depends upon him for success in whatever it is that they're pursuing. So there's unity in diversity but there are also different types of spiritual elevation. So we could say that Krishna reciprocates with materially driven people with material results, uh, with impersonalists as the Brahma Jyoti or the, the divine effulgence, with yogis, with mystic powers, for example, and with devotees, with spiritual emotion. Uh, so it's quite a simplistic way to put it. And of course, the complexities of any individual's journey is a lot more nuanced than that. I'm sure if we look at our own kind of journeys in life also, there, there may be kind of different nuances there also that have kind of connect in with all of them. But, um, you know, this is this is one way to understand this verse. And it also highlights when we look at it in this way, too, it highlights the beauty of bhakti also that even a materially driven person will not only attain their desires, but they'll actually get so much more if they approach those desires with bhakti. And so obviously the perfect example of that is Dhruva Maharaj. Uh, and it's not that we should emphasize using one's bhakti for material results. You know, we certainly don't want to do that on the path of Uttama Bhakti, for example, which is ultimately what we're striving for and trying to practice wherever we may be on that ladder. But the point is that Bhakti is a real grace, actually, and inspires Krishna to respond in ways that may not actually be proportionate to how he was approached. So he gives so much more when Bhakti is involved, and for some of the reasons we discussed in earlier sessions of this series. So, speaking of reciprocation, as our main focus is Bhakti, and this is likely the reason we're approaching Krishna, or at least trying to make our reason, it, it would be nice to end this series with some sweetness in relation to this verse and how it ties with our particular path coming from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Sometimes it's said uh, that this verse, uh, 4.11, is where we find Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the Gita in, in an esoteric way. So our, our Guru Maharaj, he often likes to speak on this point when he speaks about Mahaprabhu's appearance. Um, so we're in the, the sequel to the Bhagavad Gita, for example, in the Srimad Bhagavatam, uh, there's a section in the 10th canto where Krishna is playing the flute to attract the gopis. And as we know, their love is so intense, so high, so selfless, that even Krishna himself felt he couldn't reciprocate. 
So the gopis, they, they left their husbands, they left their family, they left their friends. But Krishna, <laughs> interestingly, he couldn't do the same, right? He, he can't leave his family. He can't leave his friends because after all, they're also his devotees, you know? He's not going to leave the cowherd boys. He's not going to leave there and these kind of things. So the gopis approached in a way that Krishna couldn't reciprocate. Um, so it's quite astonishing because... Krishna can receive every kind of approach. You know, what, one of the reasons that we're not fully satisfied in this world, even when we engage in a loving way with others, is because our love is very deep, actually, and has the potential to be very, very deep. And we want to give without limitation. But there's nothing in this world that can take unlimitedly. Sometimes this example is used, you know, this example of um, a beam of light. Like if you've ever been in the woods uh, with a torch, a really strong torch, and if there's a lot of space in front of you, it will just keep on going into the darkness. And so to, to really like harness it, if you will, to give it, really give it its potential, we need to like highlight it on something or oppose it in something that has the, the capacity to, to handle it, to reciprocate in kind, you know, has the depth and capacity like that. So Krishna, of course, as we know, he's that person, he's oceanic, uh, whereas we're tiny drops, it's sometimes said like that. So for, for him to reciprocate, it shouldn't be a huge deal for him. You know, he, he can give back as much as we're able to give, uh, you know, as much as we approach, he can reciprocate. And so naturally he speaks this verse. But when Krishna saw Radha and the gopis, uh, he himself was astounded. You know, he'd never seen anything like it before. So he was conquered by that love and especially their love in separation. You know, Krishna, he's Rasaraj, you know, the connoisseur of love. Uh, he, he's, his only business is relishing love. So he, he was shocked by that type of love that they had for him. You know, they, they, they exhausted his, his ability to reciprocate. So they gave up everything. But as you mentioned, Krishna couldn't give up everything. He has other devotees to tend to. You know, he's committed to so many others. So Krishna's response was to tell them, you know, they have to be satisfied with what they are, with who they are. You know, that the, the, they kind of saintly love. That, you know, he just couldn't couldn't reciprocate with that. He said he said their love is supreme. You know, they, they so they need to be satisfied with with the love in and of itself. Um, and there's a nice theological point that comes out of this. That's related to some of our earlier sessions. That even the absolute is drawn to bhakti, and so worships that. You know, we're we're drawn to bhakti, and so naturally it's worshipable by ourselves. We we worship Srimati Radharani. You know, we worship bhakti Devi. But also, Bhakti Devi is worshipped by Bhagavan himself, by Krishna himself. So there are different heights of love, even within Bhakti, and it can reach a point where it completely conquers the absolutes. And of course, we know this as Prema Bhakti, as uh, discussed in, in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. And Krishna himself worships Bhakti and wants to experience it himself. He, he wants to change his position and wants to taste the love of his devotees. So even from the perspective of Krishna, you know, it's really highlighting this point that the position of the devotee is the best position to have, actually. You know, a lot of people want to be God, but Krishna himself, he wants to be a devotee. So he's highlighting that that's actually a better position. So that this, this verse sometimes said um, to be tied in with the spiritual genesis of Chaitanya in some ways, you know, that as we know, um, Ch Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna 
himself trying to taste Radha's love for him. So he comes as a devotee to chase Radha's love and, and, and to taste these heights of devotion that we've been speaking about. So this verse in the Gita, it, it points to that, that um, episode, let's say, in, in, in the Absolute's life. We, we, we find Krishna Leela and Gora Leela go hand in hand. Obviously, that's been emphasized many, many times in, in many classes and, and sessions. So Chaitanya is also there in the Gita. If we, we take this verse in that way and think about the implications of that, especially in relation to the Bhagavatam and these things. And, but we can see from this, 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 this series of verses, though, that Krishna does come to different people uh, in different ways, you know, sometimes in the form of knowledge, sometimes personally, and, and sometimes in other ways, as we discussed today. But Krishna does descend into this world, and he's always descending into this world in different ways. And so we want to cultivate our practice to such a place that we also see him in every way that he shows himself in this realm. We, we don't want to miss those appearances, because again, he, he's always appearing, actually. And we'll find the more we make advancement, he makes his appearance more than we may have even realized at, at our present stage in Bhakti. Um, but we're, we're very fortunate to, be, to have been touched by Bhakti Devi for those reasons and, and being given the encouragement to Krishna with nothing short of love, or at least the aspiration of love, you know, that, that it's a very fortunate place to be in. So I'm actually going to make this one a little shorter, but maybe in a second I'll, I'll invite um, Brigupad Prabhu also, because we, we're very fortunate to have him here. So back to Davies coming in our life today also. Um, and I, But I guess I'll also, yeah, thank you for your patience and, and hearing me uh, really just repeat these wonderful gifts that our teachers have given us to contemplate. Um, and if anyone has any questions or comments or corrections, then please do go ahead and share. Um, and I think I can hear... Rugupad coming also. Uh, please feel free, Prabhu, if you'd like to come join us. Apologies for the uncomfortable chair. It's a bit full and wonky. And yeah, if anyone online also would like to. Did you have anything, Prabhu, you'd like to share? I just wanted to, to say that I thought this was a wonderful class. It was it was really nice to hear it. And and uh, your your enthusiasm really came came across and, and your feeling for the subject. So I really enjoyed it. But I don't really have any any question uh, at the moment at least. Okay, well, we, we're just happy to have your your presence on the <laughs> on the side. Anyone online like to unmute themselves or share anything? Hi, Krishna, Krishna Kumari Hi, again. Krishna. <laughs> Hi, Krishna Kumari. <laughs> Hi, Krishna. Um, so <clears throat> I was thinking about. I wrote down some of the. Um, things that you said, um, desire writes the story, you know, we, there's a, the sense of, um, well, like you said, karma is binding, um, revelation comes from the above to down, and um, how important knowledge is, and, and then the also piece of the responsibility for the, you know, we have our free will, and making the choices, mm -hmm. and and I was just thinking about this concept of um, when you hear from others on different religious paths and why do bad things happen to good people mm. um, in the sense that, oh, you know, I'm in a religion, I'm following God, I'm a good person. So why do all the bad things happen, you know, 
to me. And even though I pray and, and, and that, so, I mean, I understand, um, through the course, what we're talking about, but how, how would I talk to someone about that with, with this knowledge that we have in mind? Yeah, that's a nice question. Obviously it's a, yeah, time old kind of conundrum for a lot of, a lot of practitioners of various religions, right? A question that comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, I guess it would definitely depend on the individual you're talking to, I think, yes. uh, as to how, how, how I personally would approach it. Mm-hmm. But I think there are different ways to look at it. And I guess one, one nice way, and again, this is why I say it depends who you're speaking to, because maybe not everyone accepts, for example, you know, the, the presence of consciousness in all living entities and these kind of things. But what, I, I like this example sometimes used, the, you know, and especially in relation to the Gita, because we're studying the Gita in terms of duality and these kind of things, the, the what is good, what, what is bad, you know, when we say bad things happen to good people and these things, kind of what, what is defining what's good and what's defining what's bad. So sometimes our, our Guru Maharaj uses, uh, quite, it's quite a humorous example, <laughs> maybe a bit gory as well, but that, um, uh, you know, think like a tsunami, when a tsunami hits, you know, it's a devastating effect, it seems like a really bad thing that's happened to people, you know, the people are just on the beach at one point, they're enjoying their lives, you know, they're seeming like they're reaping good, good rewards, let's say they're good karma, <laughs> and so there's sunbathing, etc. Then there's, you know, this wave smashes, uh, huge wave, devastating, so many people lose their lives, so straight away, you know, very bad, bad thing happens. But for, for the, the sharks, for example, and for the wildlife in the, in the aquatics and like that, it's actually a great day, you know, it's, it's a picnic. And I, I know it sounds kind of, <laughs> it sounds kind of dark, but I mean, it's true when you think of it in, through that lens, you know, the kind of from whose perspective is it good and bad? So from, from um, let's speak on a human level, uh, let's take the sharks out, out of it, you know, Sometimes the example used, you see often in, in theological or philosophical debates online, you know, especially with atheists and these kind of things, they'll speak about like kids in Africa, for example, you know, there's, um, uh, you know, they've got like worm in the eye, you know, how can you, how can you speak about that, and that this is a really bad thing. But I would also say, to, to, if I was speaking to someone and, and they brought up that example, that, well, you know, okay, that, that's bad from their perspective, but what's good to you from your perspective is, is the very high level of comfort that we have in the Western world, for example, and, and, you know, the different facilities we have and all these kind of things. And if we're totally honest, if we look at the world situation, you look at really, you know, world, world um, resources and way things are managed and those kind of things, actually, the reality is not everyone, there'll always be suffering in the world. We know that and these kind of things, but there doesn't have to be this extreme of like extreme material comfort for one group of people and an extreme, extreme poverty and extreme lack of facility, these kind of things. And so there is, you can say, well, there's, there's, there is um, a connection of responsibility there also, you know, that, that um, and this isn't to like make anyone feel guilty because I'm just as guilty myself, you know, sitting here in front of, I got two monitors here and these kind of things for my work. But, but my point is, is that what's the paradigm we're looking for as to what to where the good and bad comes from and how we're analyzing it, but also what our role is in, in these things also, you know, sometimes these bad things can be an opportunity 
to serve humanity in different ways as well. You know, to serve someone. Okay, this is a bad thing happening to someone. I I I sometimes like like to think of it in that way. There's something really bad is going on in someone's life who I know and, and these kind of well. It can be a good. It's really bad for them and these kind of things. But it's also actually a good opportunity for you you to be able to share something yourself with them too. But I know it's obviously a more complex subject than that, and it's not always so easy and. It depends who you're speaking to and, and these things, but that, that's one way I look at it is, is sometimes it's hard to define, you know, when you say good things happen to bad people. I mean, even take not just in our Shastras, you can see it especially, but even look in the Bible and places like this, a lot of bad things happen to many people that actually deepen their relationship with God and deepen their um, connection with God and, and, and these kind of things, you know. So what seems bad in the beginning actually turns out to be a huge blessing. So. I, I think from our kind of like limited scope sometimes it's easy for us to kind of forget that wider picture um but yeah they're, they're, those are some th thoughts i'd have on it i mean there's probably more that will come to mind but i think i think i'll end with that that part but i don't know if Prigupad, you had anything you'd like to share and i don't need to put you on the spot <laughs> <laughs> I, I really liked what you said about this how how uh we can kind of get blinded by these dualities. What mm. is actually good, what is, is, is actually bad. And much of it, of course, is because we, we're so accustomed to thinking in terms of one lifetime. Mm. And, and even less than that, what's good for me right now? Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of break, break this kind of conditioning. Mm. And, and I also liked very much what you said about uh, uh, what may be bad for me at the moment may actually be an opportunity for for me to grow and also for others to grow by helping me if I'm in a bad situation, for mm. example, and, and vice versa, of course. Um, this is something that I'm, I'm sometimes uh, uh, um, faced with when, when people, for example, might be very upset with the idea of karma. Mm. That that's such a hard and cruel idea that if something bad happens to you, it's your fault. And uh, and one way to kind of uh, explain that is that I think think sometimes works is is if you consider like a small kid, mm. uh, a small kid who's running around and screaming and being really wild, and the parent says, "Calm down now, now little little friend, otherwise you're going to fall and hurt yourself." And the kid just goes on. Running and falls and starts crying. And if you're a parent, and unless you're a super person, superhuman person, you're going to your first reaction will be, What did I say? But then you'll still pick up the kid and, and still console the kid and 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 put a little plaster on and 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 so on. So uh, uh, it was the kid's own fault. Mm. But that doesn't uh, take away our possibility to show compassion mm. and, and to help. And, and that can then uh, transform that uh, falling and, and bruising your knee into a memory that afterwards would be a good thing. Mm. That my daddy, he took care of me and he put this, this little flower plaster on my knee or something like that. <laughs> Mm. And that's, of course, that's a small thing, but similar things um, mm. can work in the same way. That's a beautiful example. I like that idea to look at it through that kind of lens of like, yeah, a parent with small child and like that, because the child doesn't see the bigger picture either. Is, you know, mm. it's kind of, yeah. Is that helpful, Krishna Kumari?
Yes, it's, it's really helpful. It, I was thinking too, while you both were talking that, you know, the material world is, it's kind of a setup in a sense because of the dualities, you know, good and bad and, and, you know, we could go through all of them, but it, it's trying to be equiposed in, in finding that kind of middle between the good and the bad. And um, for me, I just think on a personal level, just, you know, we don't blame Krishna, we take responsibility for our position and where we're at, but we have all of these tools through the scriptures and through Sadhu Sangha and, and that to help us understand these um, situations, but it, it's not like that for others, you know, so it, it's just trying to mm. be compassionate and um, like you were saying, the individual and trying to meet them where they're at and give them some mm. comfort, but also you know, kind of, well, let's look at this, you know, what, how can we look at it? How can it, this, you know, there's a silver lining in the dark cloud kind of thing. Um, mm. So hearing what you both had to say, say was really helpful. So um, I appreciate the class so much. And um, it was a real nice progression to get to the end. So thank you for all the um, love and care you put into the presentation. Oh, thank you, Krishna Kumari. And thank you for being with us also on the journey. It was really, really nice to have your, your insights at the end of each session too. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Hi, Krishna. Hi, Krishna. Um, anyone else have anything they'd like to, to share or ask or comment before we uh, wrap up? I bet. Um, oh, sorry, please. So, uh, so, so, right thank you for the series, although we only heard this one in the first class because we were <laughs> busy the other days, but uh, we're going to catch up. We're going to catch up. Yeah. No worries. I, I'm the same. I think I'm like two, two weeks behind at the moment, two or three weeks. So I know mm. the feeling. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you for being here with the um, first and last little one. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll get to, to visit the other side of the camera at some point in Finland as well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Please. Okay. okay, then. Well, I guess we'll we'll wrap it up there. Um, and so, yeah, thank you very much for, for being here and I look forward to the future series. That's all we're Thank you.